Welcome to the China Business Law Podcast, a show about the practice of law in China from real in-house and law firm professionals on the ground. Welcome everybody to another episode of the China Business Law Podcast. I'm your host Art Dicker, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Bamanyar. Nicholas, or Nico, as I know him, is uh, is at Leaf, which is a law firm predominantly based in China, and just recently opened an office in Paris as well. Hi, Nico. How's it going? Hi, Art. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. And、um, you know, I know you're an expert in, in in particular on data privacy law, and as it particularly in China, and you know, a lot of Companies and what we're going to get into is the the main the main topic for today. A lot of international companies, I think, you know, feel、uh, a bit、um, uh, overwhelmed and feel it's a bit daunting to、uh, comply with with all of these new regulations that are coming out here in China on data privacy. I think you've you've suggested when we've talked before that it doesn't have to be、um, that complicated. And so I've got some good news for. Um, to 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 tell people ahead of time that this is hopefully going to be a very、uh, inspiring podcast. That、uh, data privacy law is something that folks out there can can wrap their heads around. So、um, I thought we'd get into it first, just with、um, sort of an introduction 101. You know, we've seen a lot of new laws come out regarding data privacy in China recently. Can you give our audience a sense of what the the the, the landscape looks like right now with with some of the regulations out there? Sure. So,、uh, especially for people coming from、uh, either the US or even better from、uh, the EU, where、um, they used to GDPR,、uh, which is a big, massive text covering pretty much everything on、uh, personal information. China is very different in a sense that you have one overarching text, the cybersecurity law, which is only giving really a direction,、um, and in a very Chinese way. Yeah, you will have one law setting that direction, but not a lot of、uh, technical detail to implement and to deploy that law. So what is happening is that、um, in you know the next five to seven years following that first law, a lot of、um, regulation measures guideline、uh, will be issued.、Um, so. With that law being very empty, it can be daunting、um, uh, for a newcomer in China to find answers to data privacy,、oh. um, and it comes essentially to navigating those very、uh, complex and, and numerous、uh, laws and, and regulation under that cybersecurity law.、Oh. Uh, And so, and and that's not necessarily unique to to the cybersecurity law. And as and, you know, like recently, China China's new、um, foreign investment law came out and is also very、um, uh, lacking on a lot of specifics. I think that's 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 that tends to be the way that regulations are are made in China.、They're, they start out quite general, and then over time, the details tend to get get filled in. And and is that is but but. We have seen some other regulations, I think, come out、uh, recently as well. In addition to the、uh, cybersecurity law, yeah, and, and you know, thank God for that because、uh, when <laughs> the the cybersecurity law came out,、uh, it was so shallow in a sense in terms、right. of of technical detail that it was actually relying on a very old、uh, glossary from、um, 1999. So a lot of the、uh, terms were actually completely 
empty from a, from a legal point of view. Um, so we had to wait for lower um, ranked um, regulation uh, to explain what is actually the substance in that law. What do you mean by personal data? What do you mean by network operator? For the longest time, we didn't know what was a, a, a network operator or critical information. Uh, so that was very, very difficult to just understand before actually um, understanding what was the, uh, the obligation. Uh, the, the the very first exercise for for any um, legal uh, advisor or lawyers to to look at the law is to understand the terms, and that was mm. the the first major difficulty. Mm. Uh, and the second difficulty is that, um, as opposed to uh, the EU, for example, where you have one regulator, China is a little bit different in a sense that you will have different uh, central authorities. Um, so you will have the um, cyberspace administration of China competing with the uh, the MIT, so the uh, the Ministry of uh, Industry and uh, Information Technology, competing with uh, the, uh, the PSB, the uh, uh, Public Security Bureau, and so on and so on. And then, so this is at central level, you will also have local authorities. So yeah. the different layers... Uh, will not only compete, but also sometimes contradict each other when they will issue regulation. So even when you actually you think that you have the answer to a specific problem reading a regulation, you might want to take this with a little bit grain of salt um, yeah. to assess if this is coming from a local authority or central authorities, and which is actually the, uh, the highest ranked one. Yeah, that's that's and and that's also something which is which uh, we don't see quite as much in 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 like you said the EU and and, and from and my experience in the US, um, it's generally um, one regulator is given a clear mandate to govern uh, a, a certain domain uh, a issue like this, but but in China that's that happens a lot. You know, going back to example, you know, when when uh, audiovisual streaming technology came out in China, they were all you know. Ministry of Culture and MIIT and and uh, SARF and uh, all of these agencies were were tr were trying to almost um, grab uh, territory grab on, mm -hmm. on the regulatory space and so in some in some ways I guess the the what we're seeing on on data privacy law and the cybersecurity law is comforting in the sense that it's following some similar patterns that we're seeing about how how China regulations are made and put into practice. How about if companies are, um, you know, recently already had to, you know, enhance their their global policies for, you know, GDPR and 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 so forth? How much kind of adaptation do you see um, companies having to make when um, they're specifically trying to localize their policies for China? Um, the the first hurdle to overcome is to actually shift the mindset. Um, from the legal department of a company coming to China Ooh. to revisit their definition, what they think they know in Chinese legal landscape can change. Um, so uh, this will be a, a first shift. And the other one is to look at a broader scope. 
Um, so yes, you will treat personal information in maybe similar ways if you have a, a, a comprehensive policies, um, but you might actually handle information that was not regulated outside China, but suddenly becomes regulated in China. Um, so you will also expand your your scope of view. Got it. Okay. Well, um, still, I think maybe, and this is maybe not unique to China, but we 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 see um, global multinational companies probably um, being able to adapt to um, the China local rules with with relative ease. I mean, they're used to to having localized policies and and so forth. Um, and 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 building uh, you know extensive and and sometimes expensive compliance programs. How about if we get into the the issue of um, smaller companies, you know SMEs out there, who um, don't necessarily even maybe have a big operation in China, but still mm -hmm. they're aware that the cybersecurity law is out there. They read a lot of client alerts about it, but still maybe not able to wrap their head around what they what they actually need to do and is there sort of um, is there sort of a shortcut or sort of a uh, a, a minimum a minimalist approach that a company can can a policy uh, a company can put together for their policy that gets gets them most of the way there and is also not necessarily overwhelmingly expensive and time consuming. Yes. So actually, the uh, the size of the business. Um, uh, if it's a, if it's a, an SME or an MNC, uh, doesn't really matter in in uh, data privacy world. What mm. matters is how much regulated information they're handling. You can have an MNC not handling a lot of regulated data, but you can have an SME handling a lot of regulated data, um, whether it's um, personal information or uh, critical information. So. The, the best way to understand how much uh, you need to put in, in terms of resource, in terms of time and money, um, into becoming compliant in China with the uh, data privacy law, is to understand exactly what regulated data you have. Mm. And this starts with a very simple exercise of a data inventory, simply mm -hmm. to understand what do you have in-house if it's uh if your business is actually a data-driven business or not if you are handling a lot of data and what data it is if it's uh if it's uh personal information uh how do you handle this this personal information is it actually uh personal information that you're handling simply because you have employee and so it's it's staff personal information Mm -hmm. Or it's actually um, your business is actually built on personal information because, for example, you are a, uh, an advertising company. So you can have just a couple of people in China, but still handling millions of people personal information. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the, the first step to understand exactly what you're handling. And um, this is not a 100% uh, a legal exercise. Uh, so you can do this in-house. Um, a, a tech person uh, can go through all the data 
that flows in and out. And I'm not going to use any um, collecting or processing um, terms right now because this is legal terms. Um, I really want to use a, a very simple definition of, of data inventory, uh, which is just observing exactly what's going on in terms of uh, data in your company. Um, so the data inventory is a, is a static view at uh, all the, uh, the information that flows in your company. And you, you can have a more dynamic view also uh, of, of those uh, data flow with the data flow diagram. Uh, mm -hmm. So there you will map essentially what goes where. So you have a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the, uh, the uh, Gedenke experiment from Einstein. So uh, he, was, uh, he was thinking uh, about how to understand a, a particle of light, a photon. And mm -hmm. he thought about an experiment in his head about riding a particle. So he was literally sitting on a particle in his mind mm -hmm. to understand what was uh, going on. And the best way to understand what is going on in terms of uh, data flow is to do exactly the same. You, you take a uh, packet of data that you collect yourself, that you process, that you buy, that you share, and you follow it through your company mm -hmm. and it will reveal amazing things. It will reveal uh, where you acquire your data, if it's in China, if it's in another jurisdiction. You will also uh, discover which SaaS, which third party product you're using and where they are located and mm -hmm. if that makes a difference or not. Uh, and you will follow essentially the life cycle of a data packet. It's also not necessarily, I'm, I think, rocket science in the sense of, you're right, you can generally ignore some of the, the, the legal terms, which if you think about them too much can get confusing. A lot of it is common sense and personal information is, what is personal information? Well, it's something that identifies a person, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not overly uh, complicated or outside of the box. And then, and then what if, if I'm processing that information, what is that? Well, am I, am I doing something with it, right? Am I, am I trying to draw value from it somehow? And if I'm, uh, if I'm handling, am I processing that information? Okay, do I have consent to get from the person that gave me that information to do the things that I'm doing? And a lot of these policies that I've seen, you know, they are very boilerplate. Um, and, and that's generally, correct me if I'm wrong, that's fine. I mean, you know, as long as you are, giving people notice and getting their consent, electronic consent is, is easy to do these days on a website or whatnot, click through. Um, and you're, you're, you know, you can actually, I think, craft the, the policy and the, the terms and conditions quite broadly. So correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't have to be an overly, even when, once you get out of the exercise of the, the inventory, as you say, even coming up with a policy gets you most of the way there as far as as far as covering your potential liability and, com and and compliance also doesn't necessarily have to be an overly complicated exercise am i am i right to to say that yeah totally um actually once you have a, a clear picture of how you collect 
the information, then you know exactly how you should inform the user. Um, so informing the user is the first step before obtaining the consent. Um, but before, because you know that uh, you will collect the information for a specific purpose and you will share the information or not to a third party um, and you also know how long you will retain this information internally um, and when you will destroy it, then publishing this to a user, informing the user about the uh, data lifecycle becomes very, very clear and very simple. Um, so it doesn't have to be a, a complicated document. Um, it's, uh, it's more a summary of the uh, data inventory and the data uh, flow diagram, essentially explaining your data life cycles to a um, um, to a, a first uh, a first time customer. I want to say uh, somebody who's never been into your company, doesn't know your your business, wants to understand in a very very short time in in ten seconds or less what is going on with data in your company. That's essentially a privacy notice. Mm -hmm. And well, now we've we've at the risk of of making this sound uh, overly simplified and and easier said than done, and and we don't want to give our our listeners a, a false sense of security either. Um, maybe it's time we start to scare them a bit too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's been a lot of. There's been a lot of high-profile um, data, you know, data breaches, data security breaches. Um, uh, you've actually, um, and your firm has has written a great article um, about that, listing some of the the, the most, um, um, you know, high-profile and recent cases. Um, you know, Equifax, British Airways, Marriott, yeah. Target. This is the list. Um, some of the more um, scandalous ones, like Ashley Madison, um, mm -hmm. and so. My question, I guess, is, you know, on the one hand, um, the policy seems easy enough to put together. Where does where does where do things break down? Um, we know that the human factor is definitely the, the weakest link. We know that uh, at some point you will have staff in the company uh, clicking on the wrong link or downloading the wrong attachment. Um, what any company needs is some strong enough policies to stop the effect of that behavior. Um, so uh, I, I don't want to be very reductive, but uh, you cannot trust 100% uh, your staff to keep your information safe. You need um, process to add a, a layer of security. And uh, you, if you don't do this, you will have a breach that is bigger than it needs to be. Um, if you have a if you have a, a breach, and when I say a breach, it doesn't have to be a, a, a hacker. Um, it can be simply the uh, someone sending the wrong email uh, to the wrong person, or it can be someone losing a laptop on a on a business trip. Um, but making sure that the information that have been lost um, are very quickly contained uh, because you've identified the incident. Uh, because you have secured the device that has been lost or because you have informed the people uh, both internally and externally that there was an incident, then you can stop the effect of um, that incident and it can just stay a very 
small incidents um, uh, if you have the right policy. So having the right people internally mobilized as soon as you have an incident is absolutely key to stop the effects. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to expand a little bit on the, uh, on the Chinese angle where, I mean, you've been here long enough to know that the, uh, the relationship to risk is very different uh, <laughs> than the one we have in, uh, in Europe or, or in the US. I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you can drive here uh, pretty much on your phone um, way above the speed limit and not wearing a seatbelt. If you don't have an accident, it's fine. Right. And if you do have an accident, well, it's bad luck. Um, so you, uh, you will need to treat risk a little bit differently uh, when, you, when you talk about um, data protection uh, in, in China. And there will be a little bit more training on um, the concept of risk and the concept of near-miss mm -hmm. incident. Uh, so it's not because... For example, an employee receives uh, a suspicious email. Uh, this should be treated as an EMS, and this should be flagged. And you should have some sort of process to uh, relay the information back to the um, response team to right. simply be aware that there was a fraudulent email and uh, something needs to be done, for example, on the uh, um, on the spam filter to, to improve security. Uh, so this is, a, this is a little bit more uh, dangerous here in China because the, simply the, the concept of risk is, uh, is very different than uh, we have uh, uh, in the West. Yeah, and, and, and at the risk of, we don't, of course, want to come across as being, um, what's the right word, culturally snobby or culturally... Um, uh, a sense of cultural superior, superiority, but but I think it is fair to say that you know in China, um, this, the the expectations on on privacy, uh, on data privacy are different for historical reasons, or we can get into a lot of the reasons. But but I don't think we're 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 um, I, I think that's most people would would agree with that, and that's just a historical. The, historically, perhaps the way it's been, and that's not unique to China either. You know, other countries mm -hmm. as well. Different countries and different cultures have of different course. privacy expectations based on their just their experience, and and so I that's imagine you you know you're right. I, I can see that for China, you do need maybe maybe different training levels and different kinds of training for staff, um, and other countries as well. And and one of the things I think is you know just some of the, the, the lists of, of companies that have had major data security breaches, you kind of have to, and, and again, they don't necessarily happen in China, right? They happen in the U.S. or wherever. Mm -hmm. you know? And you, ha you have to wonder, you know, at the, at the at some ways, like a company that's a truly global company, you think, how could they ever let this happen, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. you know um, S&P 500 or, you know, Fortune 500 company, you would think would have a great, uh, system to manage, but but you hit it right on the head, which is the weakest link is sometimes people, right? Human error is is um, is always there, whether it's a small company or a big company. And and in some ways, having worked in in large multinational companies before, technology companies, I know that um, you know the issue of ownership 
um, over policies, process, um, and being accountable for things is actually quite difficult sometimes in multinational companies. It's kind of the opposite of what we talked about earlier, where in China you had different regulators fighting over mm -hmm. who gets to who gets to um, have the mandate over um, you know data privacy policies in multinational companies. Actually, sometimes the opposite is true, which is that nobody wants ownership exactly. of policy. And, and, and that's where I imagine a lot of the breakdown can happen for as, even at some of these, it, it may, ironically, at some of these bigger companies where, where, where responsibility is more dispersed. Um, so, yes, it's, uh, it's exactly, um, it's actually more true with data privacy uh, because as soon as we raise the topic in, um, in a company, um, everybody's going to look at IT. And then IT, because they don't understand um, a lot about the uh, the regulation, simply because they don't have the uh, the language for this, is going to uh, turn back to legal. And then legal doesn't really know what to do about this. So suddenly you have this this um, data privacy topic becoming a hot potato that nobody wants. <laughs> exactly. And um, and, and so you have obviously a problem on, on accountability because nobody wants to, to take care of this. Um, but at a very operational level, you don't have a lot of budget for this. Um, mm -hmm. Simply because, uh, first of all, uh, no department really wants it. And also, it doesn't really create value at the moment, right. at least. So that's a, that's a big problem in, in data privacy. How do you actually justify the costs as a department if you're IT, if you're legal, if you're finance? So you have those, those departments only perceiving data privacy as a cost center. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody sees data privacy as an investment that's going to yield revenue. Uh, data privacy is not as sexy as a marketing campaign, as right. um, uh, working on the new design for a product. Um, a lot of the companies don't see compliance as something that will give them more user or more customers. Um, but more and more, and this is, this is uh, still a, a very uh, slow trend, but it's definitely a trend, an emerging trend. People are actually putting data privacy um, as a strength, as mm -hmm. a... Um, a part of their value proposition. And this becomes especially true with um, um, companies targeting fairly young users. So um, I want to say millenniums or uh, Generation Z, um, because there is a very strong attachment to personal information and um, to uh, owning their data. Um, yeah. So with a little bit older generation, um, so uh, it's, it's, it's less of a problem, um, but I see more and more companies, and I've seen companies, for example, in, uh, in New Zealand uh, putting this forward. And it's very interesting because New Zealand has been perceived as a little bit of a, a Petri dish uh, mm -hmm. When it comes to, uh, to new features, I mean, uh, you know, big companies, big social media uh, always push their new features back in, uh, in New Zealand to, uh, to see how it, how it does. 
Um, so uh, despite being a, a small country, it's actually a very interesting uh, um, petri dish to, to look for, for trends. Um, so uh, this is where you see companies actually putting forward data privacy as part of their value proposition. Uh, oh. but, but more and more, I think that the Chinese customer is going to become more demanding on having their personal information um, being protected. And, um, and, and this is actually, I think, going to be a, the, the next big, big trend in, uh, in China. So doing business the, uh, the old-fashioned way where you can just collect any uh, information and share any information with, uh, with whoever is not going to work for a very long time. Um, and the, uh, that's, uh, so that's going to be not only market-driven, but also it's going to be uh, uh, driven by very, very strong um, sanctions. And uh, because, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, the legal world is a, is a scary world. Um, there are very strong sections in China, way stronger than in, uh, in the EU, for example. Uh, for example, the uh, a DPO, a data protection officer uh, in the EU, cannot be sanctioned, cannot go to jail, cannot be demoted or fired because uh, there was some data breach. Um, it's it's in, the, in, the, in the GPR. However, in China, you have personal liability when uh, a network operator fails to respect the obligation related to uh, data privacy or data protection. What does that mean? It's simply if a company has a breach, not only the, uh, the legal rep, the legal representative of the company can uh, pay a fine, but the person in charge of uh, network security and, and data protection can also go to jail. Yeah. Can also be banned for life to hold a position in this industry. So the consequence of a violation of the data privacy laws here in China are much heavier. Mm. Um, and when again, when you come back to those companies uh, arriving in China and thinking that they know data privacy because of um, GDPR, for example, they actually need to understand that they don't know that much simply mm. because the rules here are uh, very, very different and everything has a different meaning, uh, especially mm. at the, the sanction level. Mm. Yeah, that's that's quite uh, sobering for people to, to, to wrap their heads around. I mean, that that's um, because obviously responsibility is hard to pin on someone, but but someone like the legal rep or the highest person in charge of, of the, the policy is, is, is certainly going to be the first person that people look at. And I'm not sure. That's why people don't always want to be the legal rep, right, of a of a cover company in in China. It's it's not a sought after position necessarily. Um, um, one of the things I thought we were we we should at least um, um, get a quick take from you on was um, because we're recording this during the coronavirus um, situation, which has been going on for a few weeks now in China and uh, and and now outside of China. Um, do you see an impact, if any, on, on data privacy, on um, maybe data collection? Um, regarding data privacy specifically, uh, it still needs to be 
addressed as a crisis. And yeah. you can look at it as um, a fantastic opportunity to assess your level of preparedness uh, yeah. when it comes to a crisis. Um, and that will, for example, affect uh, your access to data. If, for example, your office is completely closed, um, can you still access to your data? Do you have those those um, essential backups that we call mm -hmm. golden disk? Uh, it's uh, essentially the vital information for your company to continue business. If, let's say, uh, your your office is closed, or worst case scenario, a building uh, takes um, goes into flame and uh, and uh, everything is lost. So the the coronavirus is. Uh, is a good opportunity to to look at um, how ready you are uh, to face a crisis, mm -hmm. um, and it's also a, a fantastic opportunity to uh, to to work on anything uh, data related uh, because data should be pretty much available whether you're uh, at the office or not, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I think it's a, it's a great time to. Uh, to look into it, and and to your earlier point, I, absolutely. And to, and to your earlier point about companies wanting to get a little more automated, and take the human element and, and the risk of human error more and more out of the out of the equation. This is a, this is a perfect testing ground for that because where people are dispersed and people are not able to come into the office, this you you can actually see where, if any, your process may may have the potential to break down. So I, I, in, in that sense, this is, a, like you said, this is an opportunity for that kind of an, uh, an assessment and, um, and, and maybe to improve and get your, get your systems more automated. Well, Nico, I want to thank you so much. You know, this, is, this has really been a great for our audience. I'm sure you're going to get quite a lot out of this. You know, it's a topic I said at the beginning where it can seem a little bit daunting and, and people hear a lot of horror stories and it's, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, confusion about language and and technical terms and 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 you know legal department versus the IT department not wanting to take ownership all the things we've talked about but I think you've done a great job of breaking it down for people and explaining it in a way that they can understand and and it's not um, it's not necessarily an overwhelming challenge and and so I think uh, you know people will really appreciate um, all the knowledge you've you've given them on this episode so thanks so much for coming on the on the show well, thank you all for, for having me, and it was really my pleasure to uh, give a, a glimpse on, uh, on data privacy in, in China. Uh, it is not as complicated as, as it looks when, uh, when you take everything brick by brick in a very engineering way. Um, so I hope that uh, people will, will get a, a better understanding of uh, what it means to be compliant with data privacy uh, regulation in China or actually in the rest of the world. And how rare is that for lawyers to actually say something is not that complicated <laughs> to their clients, Very or potential rare. clients or, or friends or listeners? So um, well, one last uh, housekeeping thing. How can people what's the best way for people to reach out to you? You know, like we'll we'll take the show and we'll um, put it out on different podcast networks yeah. uh, and I'll put um, notes up there um, on LinkedIn as well. I'll tag you. But how do you how do you generally like to be contacted? Is LinkedIn a good way to people to reach out to you? Yeah, LinkedIn is actually great. Yeah. So you're active on LinkedIn so people yeah. can, can ping you yeah. there. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Nico, for joining. And, um, and so happy My pleasure. you could come on. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap.
Thank you. Thank you.